0: There's absolutely a need for more adaptation and loss and damage finance, but if we don't invest in bringing down emissions, the climate impacts that we're going to see are going to be so big that no one will be able to foot the bill.
1: Welcome to The Joel. It's the 14th of December. I'm your host, Kira Taylor. Later in the episode, we'll dive into the world of climate finance and the recent developments at COP28. But first, let's take a look at the top climate and energy stories from around the world today. The COP28 outcome was good, but finance is still lacking. That's the reaction of international groups following the agreement. United Nations Development Programme Administrator, Achim Steiner, said the outcome secured limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees as the North Star for collective climate ambition. However, the declaration should be considered the starting point for more ambition, not the end point, he added. He highlighted that more needs to be done on finance, particularly for vulnerable countries to carry out climate ambition. Similarly, International Energy Agency chief Fatih Barol congratulated the COP presidency and countries involved on the major outcome that clearly states the goal of transitioning away from fossil fuels in line with 1.5 degrees. But he said greater efforts are needed on finance for developing economies. More on climate finance later. Reactions are still rolling in following the COP28 agreement. The High Ambition Coalition, a group of countries pushing for more climate action, says more needs to be done. The group's chair and minister from the Marshall Islands, John Silk, said the deal on accelerating the transition from fossil fuels and enhanced action is good. But the true test is what happens outside of the room, he added. A paragraph in the COP28 conclusions mentioning the role of transitional fuels did not go unnoticed. It recognises that transitional fuels can play a role in facilitating the energy transition while ensuring energy security. But Bloomberg commentator Javier Blas pointed out there is no definition, leaving each country to decide what a transitional fuel is themselves. EU negotiators struck a deal on reforming Europe's electricity market after a final 10-hour round of negotiations. The reform was tabled in March 2023 in response to soaring energy bills. It looks at increasing protection for consumers, boosting renewables and reducing the impact of volatile fossil fuel prices on electricity. Negotiators reached an agreement in the early hours of Thursday, but it still needs to be officially signed off. The agreement means Europe has a socially just electricity market design that will better protect citizens, said the lead negotiator for the European Parliament, Nicolas gonzalez Cesares. However, the deal includes a controversial derogation that allows support for coal-fired power plants that back up the grid. This drew criticism from the Greens negotiator, Mikhail Bloss. He pointed out that it comes a day after the COP28 agreement to phase out inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. It makes Europe look completely untrustworthy, he said. The UK government has cancelled a controversial hydrogen for heating trial. In a statement, the government said it recognises the potential for hydrogen in home heating, but that the hydrogen itself will not be available. It will assess evidence from a trial in FIFE and other schemes to decide whether and how hydrogen could help decarbonise households. Some support for Germany's green transition has been axed as part of the country's attempt to get out of its debt conundrum. Germany's constitutional court had ruled it could not move unused pandemic debt to a climate and transformation fund. As part of the deal to get out of the issue, support for revamping railways and electric vehicles has been scrapped. RWE is set to build three offshore wind projects with a total capacity of 1.4 gigawatts in Japan. The country aims to become a major wind energy producer. In 2022, it had 136 megawatts of offshore installed capacity. It is aiming to ramp that up to 10 gigawatts by 2030 and 45 gigawatts by 2040. The European Investment Bank announced a 5 billion euro counter-guarantee scheme for wind energy manufacturing. This should improve access to finance for manufacturers and help boost European energy security and competitiveness. The European Union aims to have 420 gigawatts of wind energy by 2030, but its supply chain is struggling. The EU recently launched a wind power package to address this, including improving access to finance and de-risking tools from the EIB. That's it for today's news, now on to the story of the moment. Climate finance is a major part of limiting global warming. It's seen as a tool to build trust and an essential resource for vulnerable and developing countries to adapt to and prevent the climate crisis. COP28 saw huge developments, including the establishment of a loss and damage fund. But how far has climate finance come and is it enough? I spoke to Joe Thwaites, a senior advocate for international climate finance at the Natural Resources Defence Council about this.
0: Climate finance uh, is always a big issue at the, the UN climate negotiations, partly because, you know, a lot of what climate action entails is going to need investment. And there's, there's always been a debate over which countries uh, and, and even within countries who should, who should move first and, and who, should, who should be footing the bill. One of the big challenges, actually, that there is no fully agreed upon definition of climate finance. So uh, the one way of looking at it is all global investments that help address climate change in some way, be that helping reduce greenhouse gas emissions that that are driving climate change, or helping uh, to deal with the impacts of climate change, generally mitigation and adaptation one way of looking at it is looking at all global financial flows that are relevant to that. Within the UN negotiations, it's more often focused on finance from developed countries to developing countries. Um, But even even that is is, is starting to shift.
1: Discussions around climate finance have changed in recent years as countries which do not have a formal obligation to provide finance begin to step up. This includes the United Arab Emirates contributing to the loss and damage fund at COP28. There has also been a lot of pressure on China to step up. Joe explain what China's current role in climate finance is.
0: In in many ways, China is providing more climate finance than than many of the developed countries. They do that through bilateral development agencies, export credit agencies, um, but they also are major contributors and major shareholders in multilateral development banks, which are increasingly doing more. On climate, um, but they they have they have quite strongly emphasised that they don't they don't see themselves as as equivalent. And their argument, particularly, is that when you look at Chinese emissions on a per capita basis, or even Chinese wealth on a per capita basis, it's still below that of most uh, developed countries.
1: The start of COP twenty eight saw the agreement of the loss and damage fund. Joe hopes the amount of funding pledged and lessons learnt from other funds means it will be up and running before COP twenty nine next year. He explained why the agreement is so historic.
0: Normally, at at climate negotiations, the principle is nothing's agreed until everything's agreed. There's horse trading, different issues are sort of played off against each other. And then at the very end, on the final day, they adopt all the decisions um, as a package. Well, the first thing that was unprecedented was that at COP28, they actually adopted the governing instrument of the fund on day one. But the second thing that was unprecedented was that within seconds of the gavel coming down and that that the fund being formally established, you saw first the UAE and then Germany step up and pledge $100 million each to the fund. That was the minimum startup capital that that was needed to, to get the fund established. Um, and then you saw other countries join them. And by... Uh, I think day three or day four of, of the cart, once all the world leaders had had finished speaking at the, the leaders summit, the fund was at $655.9 million in pledges. And I have never seen um, pledges come in that fast and at that scale. Normally, when 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 this UN process has created funds like the Green Climate Fund, that governing instrument was adopted in 2011. It wasn't until 2014 that we started to see the real pledges come in. There were a few just of the start-up costs, but, but, but this, this was real pledges.
1: One concern is that funding is just being moved into the Loss and Damage Fund rather than new funding being delivered. It's crucial all funds are utilised, said Jo.
0: One of the things that's really important to remember is that there's absolutely a need for more adaptation and loss and damage finance. But if we don't invest in bringing down emissions, the climate impacts that we're going to see are going to be so big that no one will be able to foot the bill. We need action across all three fronts. It's a sad reflection of um, our collective failure to to do enough to reduce emissions and to do enough on adaptation that we are now facing such uh, severe climate impacts that loss and damage is the bill the bill is mounting. In particular, one of the the real concerns with with the the pledges to the new fund is whether they reflect an extension of new finance um, of governments. You know, opening up their their pocketbooks and saying that we understand there's there's a problem here and we need to to spend more on it. Or is it coming to the detriment of adaptation funding in particular? And that I think is still an open question. It's very hard to sort of precisely establish that. And of course, all money is fungible. So you, you you know if you if you spend on one thing, you you unless you've found new sources of revenues, you likely are cutting back on something else. But you know if you're cutting back on fossil fuel subsidies to fund loss and damage. I think most people would think that's a good thing. If you're cutting back on your, your health or your education or your adaptation budget, that's not good.
1: Joe explained that there are three UN adaptation funds, two received about the same as normal, but the third fell short of what it raised last year and significantly short of its goal. This raises a concern as to whether the money is just being moved between funds. However, in general, climate finance is on the increase.
0: That if you add up the pledges to all of these funds together they exceed a billion dollars and normally these these funds do not get anywhere near near that amount. maybe in a really good year they, they would get 500 million dollars among all, all three of those existing adaptation funds and then you have this new one on top. So I think there is you know there is some reason to to see that at least the amount of funding flowing into to the UN funds is going up.
1: Joe also wants to see governments drive the private sector to do more. He argues that the Covid crisis and war in Ukraine have shown money is available to help out and that governments can use levers to drive financial flows.
0: It's perfectly possible for governments to find the money when there's a crisis that is urgent enough and also to to regulate, to force the hand of, of the private sector, the way that Western governments stepped up and put sanctions on Russia and the, the way that that affected private financial flows was really significant. So I think we we do need to absolutely see uh, governments doing more, but we also need the private sector to be certainly not investing in ways that make the problem worse and ideally investing to, to help solve climate change. And I think there's a number of levers that governments have, available to them to help shift private finance flows and to send the right signals to markets that they need to to get their house in order and that's you know both using subsidies and incentives to try and level the playing field in many ways right now the playing field is tilted um, far too too much towards fossil fuels the amount of fossil fuel subsidies is over a trillion dollars a year and and that's way way more than than renewable energy gets so um, shifting some of those subsidies, but then also using the regulatory levers that, that governments have available to them, and, and that we've seen them deploy in cases uh, such as such as sanctions on Russia. The amount of divestment that you saw from the Russian economy, from Western firms pulling out of Russia, and, and just incredibly fast, I found remarkable because for years there's been a lot of talk about you know how do you get. Particularly, investors, institutional investors, passive investment funds that that use indexes, and they've we've, we've talked a lot about can you can you shift out of fossil fuels? And, and the answer is often, well, these are indexes; they just reflect the market, they just reflect the the composition of the S and P 500 or the FTSE 100. And the fact that index funds that previously did have large exposure to Russia or, or significant exposure to Russia just dropped Russian assets almost overnight I think was really significant because it, it was a it was a, a really clear example that you can actually move investment and, and you can particularly when you're looking down the barrel of, of potential sanctions that you can move really fast and so I think that that's really started to get people thinking about how you know at what point might we move with that speed. Uh, on climate uh, investment and and, and what will it take to to get governments to act in that way and and to to get private markets to react in that way as well.
1: Just in case you start to miss the big climate finance debates, never fear. Next year is expected to see even more talks on climate finance as the world looks at what is needed post-2025. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for joining me. I'll be back tomorrow with more news. If you want to learn more about climate finance, check out the Talking Transitions podcast series by Foresight Editor-in-Chief David Weston. The Jolt is free to air for now, so please do spread the word and share the episode if you enjoy listening. Thanks to everyone at Foresight for helping make The Jolt possible and shout out to Mute Island for providing the theme music. Until next time, thanks for being a part of The Jolt.